0: reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26. I invite your hearing of God's uh, word read publicly and hearing it both in faith and in reverence. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please join me for another time of prayer. Oh, uh, Father, again, we come before you in prayer, uh, in worship, in adoration. Great is our God and greatly to be praised. Uh, as we contemplate the majesty and the glory of God enthroned on high, we are thankful for your presence with us, for your fatherly care, your tender compassions, again, you know the way in which we go, you know our frame, we are formed of dust, we grow weary, we grow perplexed, Um, we grow ill, Uh, and yet you are there, and your presence blesses every circumstance to us because you are working all things for good. And so uh, we come before you on behalf of others, again, confident in your fatherly care to do what is well and good, far beyond what we could ask or think. But we commend to you those who might come uh, in some measure of distress or be perplexed over some circumstance of life. Uh, may light shine upon them in the darkness. May their hearts be firm, trusting in you through all things. Some may be grieving again the loss of a dear loved one. Comfort the grieving, for you are the father of all comfort. And uh, may they uh, counter that grief with the, uh, the joy and the hope of the knowledge of the resurrection yet to come. We pray for our congregation here as we gather. We, we pray that we might be a, uh, an assembly of uh, believers that, love one another deeply and sincerely. Together, may we be patient throughout all the tribulations of life. May we continue to be constant in prayer for the kingdom, for um, uh, the welfare of those that we know, uh, for you to restrain evil, uh, even as you give us grace to be salt and light in the places where you put us in the communities. Uh, So much we could pray for so little time but we commend this hour to you we ask your blessings upon phil and upon the word which you will hold forth from the letter to the romans may you bless it to us O father for father as your word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens bless it to us this morning may it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and we pray these things in christ's name the eternal word amen Thy will be done,
1: Lord. Hear our prayers. Some of you are aware that uh, Barbara and I uh, went on holiday past month or so, and uh, one of the things we did in uh, South Carolina is uh, go visit an aircraft carrier. Um, stood before this massive metal structure, wondering how in the world. Could men make such a thing float, much less launch aircraft off of it? Well, of course, you know the answer. It's uh, science. Precision of science and engineering. Uh, Smart people, gifted people. But again, incredible precision. Uh, Recently, I took an airplane to uh, float the Columbia River. Same thing came over me. I don't know what an airplane weighs. Uh, I remember a pilot tell, telling me that a fully armed B-52 weighs 500,000 pounds. How do you get a 500,000 pound vehicle to fly in the air? Well, again, really smart aeronautical engineers, physicists, uh, and on and on. Precision is, is the point in front of me. It's the same thing you expect of your physician. Uh, You want him to be precise in his science as he tests whatever he tests. And then you go to your pharmacist and you want your pharmacist to be precise. You want him or her to be a good chemist. Precision. And so when uh, when we think about theology, theology is a science. Precision is incredibly important. And this morning we're going to look at some of the precision that is engaged in our salvation. And the precision is radically important. Uh, It is as important as your pharmacist is when he's making whatever it is he's making for you. Or your physician, or the engineers that designed your airplane, or the boats that you float on, or the cars that you drive in that precision is incredibly important. And it really engages this this most compelling question of all of life, and that is, how can a man who has no righteousness whatsoever have a relationship with a God who's totally and entirely righteous and who brooks absolutely no imperfections whatsoever? How can a God who is absolutely perfect in everything have a relationship with men who have nothing with which to turn his head and who certainly have no righteousness? We learned that really last week, that all of us are born under sin and God is entirely the opposite. So what bridges that gap? How can we get to him or better yet, how does he get to us? Paul engages that precision in our text this morning. Uh, The subject uh, of the text that we read is fairly clear because the word righteousness is is engaged four times. So we are dealing with the righteousness of God. And again, this compelling question, how can men who have none of it engage a God who is totally righteous? Well, of course, that righteousness is engaged or accessible only by divine action in God's sovereign grace. Men cannot act, and therefore only God can. If you think about the lesson last week, uh, we are born under sin, and so God alone can save us. Nothing else, absolutely nothing else will work. And that's the precision of the language in our text this morning. Uh, Furthermore, the precision engages the reality that it's entirely on his conditions. He makes the conditions entirely based upon him. The other thing that engages uh, precision in our text this morning is uh, we are are going to look in our text at uh, the court of heaven and the precision of biblical law on which the entirety of our salvation is based. Again, the previous text leaves all mankind. All mankind. The religious man, the non-religious, the philanthropist, uh, the man acclaimed by society, and all other categories of humankind to be under sin. And... What's worse, rejected by God. Totally rejected. Because God brooks no imperfections whatsoever. This is uh, one of the great driving forces, by the way, of the Protestant Reformation. Luther, Martin Luther was plagued by the terrifying questions, have I done enough for God to accept me? And the answer to that question is no one could ever do enough because God brooks no imperfections. Really turned Martin Luther uh, to the majesty of the precision of texts like this and really became a match and the gasoline as well that started the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of the great doctrines of the grace of God that the church had smothered in ignorance and imprecision. So, if man can't do enough, then there's only one person who can do enough, and that is God Himself. And that precision is radically important. That God must work. That God must act. And so He does. Verse 21, the righteousness of God is manifested in the Scriptures. So God acts by providing for us a written record of the way to Him. And they are accessible to us. God is not, but the Scriptures are. It's essential that one go there for the precision of God's plan of salvation. Uh, The temporal indicator uh, sets the stage that uh, God is going to act. Notice verse 21, but now. So God acts. Thank God that He does. And in the Scriptures, He has revealed His righteousness in the witness of the law and prophets. Notice the word witness. We're in a court of law. There are two witnesses, the law and the prophets. And God initiates by revealing Himself in the entirety of Scripture. So Again, God is acting. We cannot, so He must. And He does in grace. And one of the ways He acts is He leaves us a written record of the precision of the way of salvation. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 5. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. That text is literally being fulfilled in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. The going forth of the righteousness of God. Verse 8 of Isaiah 51. My righteousness shall be forever and my salvation to all generations. And again, the more intensified fulfillment is in our text this morning. It has gone forth. And the Apostle Paul is going to describe it to us in remarkable precision. Again, the legal context of the two witnesses are declaring the righteousness of God. In every respect, they're witnessing against us because we do not have the righteousness of God. Think of a court of law. Imagine yourself this morning in a court of law. No, imagine yourself in a heavenly court and the two witnesses of law and prophets stand up and witness against you and you recognize immediately that you are guilty because God does not accept the righteousness of man. It's a troubling thought, but very necessary to the precision of salvation. And they witness that we are judged by the standard of His righteousness. Listening to a politician this week uh, used a very troublesome phrase to me. Uh, The reference was, my truth. Well, if I can define my own truth, then... I can get home scot-free, but the problem is I can't do that. God alone is truth in the way of salvation. I'm not unmindful that he's also the truth, the natural law, the precision of science and engineering, whether it be aeronautical or nautical, uh, because he, he is the author of all truth. But certainly in terms of the way to him, uh, he alone establishes the record of the entirety of our need and the way it's accessed in the scriptures. I oftentimes, in fact, more often than not, when I try to witness to my friends, I hear uh, the oft repeated refrain Phil, my spirituality is good enough. The problem with that is, is nowhere in the scriptures does God accept our spirituality. And the witnesses before us are telling us that what God alone will accept is His own righteousness. And that righteousness, verses 22-23, to 23, is accessible to all, but only on His conditions. Now, the good news is that God takes the initiative given our total depravity and our total inability and it is through faith, as the soul means, and that faith must have as its sole object, sole object, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. No other object is acceptable to God but His only begotten beloved Son, the Messiah, King Messiah, Jesus Christ. You can manufacture all of your objects as every other religion does, but none are acceptable in heaven. Only the righteousness of His Son. It's the only way to God. The righteousness of His Son. And faith apprehends who Christ is, what He did, why He did it, and relies totally and entirely on Him alone. Perhaps an allusion here to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. The prophet says, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And so we're given an introduction in the precision of theology of salvation to Jesus Christ. It's the only way to God. And every other way is rejected. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Of Him, Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sin. And at that point, now we know how we can have a relationship with a totally righteous God. Through the righteousness of His Son and believing in Him. And through Him, we receive the forgiveness of sin. The greatest provision and gift of all of life is for God to forgive your sin, past, present, and future, by the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there is no other way but God's way. He accepts nothing but what He provides. So, the eschatological fulfillment of Isaiah and the great servant song is now engaged in the divine provision of God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the sole way to God. And notice, notice the text, again, uh, verse 22 of Romans chapter 3 to all those who believe, to everyone who believes. No one who believes is left out. So Christ is the way to God. No other way. Clearly and unequivocally, it is by faith in Him alone. There's no distinction. No distinction whatsoever except what? Faith in Christ alone. There are distinctions all over our world today. Sometimes we fight and argue over them. But with God, there's only one distinction, faith in him alone. Let me remind you in terms of this great uh, phrase that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, faith alone, uh, really uh, applies to the great doctrine of justification, which we will discuss in a moment. In terms of the way to God, it is faith alone. The moment you leave the doctrine of justification, works, of course, become radically important. But in terms of justification, God accepts no human works whatsoever. You could not work for all eternity to receive the blessings, gratuitous blessings of a sovereign God. Because you're a sinner under sin. And God will only accept His work. No other way. No other basis. Faith alone. Again, it's not good men. We love good men. Our civilization, our neighborhoods need good men and women to be sure. God does not accept the works of good men and women because there are none in terms of salvation. He doesn't accept religious men or spiritual men. He doesn't accept for sure men who don't feel that they need it or men who reject for their own way because there is no other way. Because all are disqualified and have lost glory. And God is entirely glorious. Notice the text, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is a chasm that is so immense that separates fallen mankind From the glories of heaven. That only God can bridge it. And he does. In his son. And that chasm can be bridged by faith in Christ alone. That's the need. The divine standard has been violated in grace. God makes a way by faith in Christ alone. Now let's turn to another point of precision. How does he do that? The righteousness has its source in Jesus Christ. Verses 24 and the first part of verse 25. That God justifies us freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. The point of this text of redemption is we cannot pay. We have nothing that is acceptable to God. We can amass all of the wealth of the U.S. treasury and the printing of dollars or whatever, the mining of gold and diamonds, and take it all to the court of heaven, it means nothing to God. It belongs to Him anyway. Why would He be impressed by human wealth? But the wealth of His Son turns His head. And wealthy His Son is, to be sure. Justification that's used uh, uh, in this text, verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Justification is 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 a legal term. It's the product of a judge. In this case, a heavenly judge, God Himself. And based upon faith in Christ, God declares us to be just entirely based on the merits of the righteousness of His own Son. That's the only medium of exchange that God traffics in the righteousness of God Himself. In this case, God the Son. In the case of the theology of the court, that the court imputes, that's another legal term, imputation. The court imputes the righteousness of the Son of God to all who believe and hope in Him alone. That's the way to God. The imputation of the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to the account of fallen men. It's as if I was entirely broke and bankrupt on my way to debtor's prison. And some wealthy man takes pity on me and makes a deposit in my bank account. And all of my debts are cured. In this case, there's a liability of sin that's eternal and forever. And God cures it in His Son. By charging his righteousness to our account. By the way, there's a beautiful illustration of this in the book of Philemon. If you're wondering where that is, it's a very small book right before the book of Hebrews. Philemon and verse 18. Uh, the context of this verse is about a slave, uh, city of Rome. He's run away from his master. Could be that he stole from his master. Not a good thing for a slave to do in Rome. But maybe he steals from his master. He's done some wrong. We don't really know what it is, but it may be theft. I'm not sure I know. Uh, comes uh, Comes to Rome and hears the gospel by the Apostle Paul and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Now there's another wrong that has to be cured. The divine cure has been accomplished by faith in Christ. But what about the master of the slave? Who's going to cure that? How can a slave cure it who has nothing? Now let's look at Philemon verse 18. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. My friends, that's the doctrine of justification. It's charged. The righteousness of Christ is charged to our account in much the same way that Paul on an earthly basis is saying, whatever Philemon owes, charge it to me and I'll pay the bill. That's the doctrine of justification in a very earthly form. It's also a very beautiful form. That God would charge to your account that is utterly empty the very righteousness of His Son, thereby enabling you To be a son of God. Redemption is a release by the payment of a price. And the price is provided by God because only He can provide it. It's the only price acceptable to God. Absolutely no other medium of exchange will do. Certainly not law works. God is not impressed with human works. He is very impressed with the work of his son upon the cross. So much so that he engages his own righteousness to be charged to the accounts of those who have faith in him. And that condition, by the way, the very precision of that condition is entirely exclusive on the gratuitous act of a sovereign God, purely his grace. No other medium of exchange but God's gratuity in His Son. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, in Him, namely Christ. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of His grace. The entire treasury of heaven opens and pours out upon all who have faith in Jesus Christ Alone for the hope of eternal salvation. When I was stationed at Fort Knox, I used to always drive by Fort Knox. How much gold is in there? It's always conspiracy theories saying that there's none. I, I presume there's a lot of gold at Fort Knox. You can't even get to the door to knock on it. What would it be to have all the gold of Fort Knox? Chump change. What would it be? To have complete forgiveness. Total, everlasting, eternal forgiveness by the righteous judge of the world. My friend, that's, that's riches. In Christ, we have untold riches. Titus 3, verse 7. That being justified by His grace we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He not only accepts us, He makes us heirs of all of eternity and eternal glory. We're heirs because we're now sons and daughters. He writes us in His eternal will for everlasting life. The great provisions of the grace of God. The precision of righteousness and justification. The dominant position today in most American churches is not the imputation of righteousness. Not a court of law whatsoever. It's God-infusing grace in the heart of mankind. So God accepts us based partly on what we do and partly what He did. Roman Catholic positions, Orthodox position, position of Methodist churches, and on and on. God infuses grace. He knows we need something. He also knows we can cooperate. So He gives us a little bit of grace. And so with our works and His grace, we have eternal salvation. The problem with that is it totally violates every precision of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. It's not the infusion of grace. It's the imputation by a court of law and the judge saying, I accept this person based upon entirely, solely the righteousness of my own son. Absent that, there is no salvation whatsoever. The righteousness of the very Son of God charged to our account. So it's entirely meritorious Based upon his son. We err when we think that our works have some merit. God is impressed in some way with some presumably human meritorious act that I do. The problem is, God is not whatsoever. Perfection is not impressed at all with the slightest of imperfection. Think of flying on an airplane. in which the laws of science are not followed. Some engineer th- says, well, I, I, just, I just feel this will work. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to engage my computer. Decades ago, my slide rule, I, I just feel it will work. Uh, that, who's going to fly on that airplane? Who's going to fly on the airplane in which the mechanics say, you know, uh, I just have this feeling that it will be OK? The heck with that. I want the court, the court of heaven, to tell me about the righteousness of the beauty of the Son of God and then simply to charge it to my account because I am broke, penurious, and absolutely bankrupt. But God is entirely gracious and charges the wealth of eternal glory and the righteousness of God to the accounts of men and women who are under sin, but who come and have faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation. Uh, The concept of propitiation in uh, verse 25 uh, speaks to satisfaction by atonement. Probably this is an allusion to the great day of atonement Leviticus chapter 16. Very uh, precise, complicated uh, acts on behalf of the high priest. The high priest was to make atonement for himself and his household uh, by slaughtering a bull and sprinkling the blood upon the mercy seat. In the Old Testament, that word mercy seat is the New Testament word for propitiation. That we have in Christ... The mercy seat. It's the word in Romans 3.25. The word propitiation. is the word of the cover of the ark called the mercy seat. Then the high priest was to take a goat and offer it for the people and sprinkle it on the mercy seat for propitiation. Then he was to take a live goat and confess over it all the sins of the people and send it away. It's from that we have the English word scapegoat. The goat pays the penalty, and we go free. In our case, Christ pays the penalty, and we go free. Now Christ is the high priest who offers Himself as payment for the removal of sin, as the entire and sole provision for redemption and forgiveness. Again, indirect prophetic fulfillment from Leviticus 16 to Romans chapter 3. And it's accessible by faith in His blood. The atonement, of course, is one of penal substitution. By penal, meaning Christ was punished on the cross for our sins. He paid. We go free. Based on what? Entirely and solely the grace of God. And the merits of Christ charged to us as the legal basis of our justification. Go back to the court that I described that you were in a few moments ago. You know you're guilty. You know the witnesses are telling the truth about you. And they know every dark secret of your heart. And you know that the condemnation is coming. And then Christ says, I purchased that one. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to that one and the court lets us free based entirely upon the acts of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The legal basis, not feelings basis, the legal basis of our salvation and our justification by the court of heaven. Thank God it's accomplished in a court in which we weren't even present. Thank God, uh, by His divine power, He gave us life so that we could believe, entirely based on His grace. What a great Savior. What a great provision that God bridges this incredible chasm by giving us what we need, His righteousness. Because only the righteousness of His Son is accepted. Incredible precision. And the righteousness of God was demonstrated in the Old Testament and now finally in Christ. Latter part of verse 25 and verse 26. It was demonstrated in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament sins were not paid for, payment was postponed until the cross. Think of all of the Old Testament saints waiting for that day, paid for at the cross because all the sacrificial system was incapable of having its final fulfillment in Christ the other purpose is a demonstration of God's righteousness in the present time the result is twofold first god is just or righteous he has fully dealt with sin and meets the standards of his own divine perfections in the provision of his son and secondly He is the one justifying by faith in Christ. Based solely and entirely on the merits of the righteousness of His Son and His substitutionary atonement, He can declare us to be righteous by imputation. Again, the righteousness of God charged to our account. The single greatest transaction of all time. God imputing His righteousness to the account of men and women who are guilty, thereby saving them. And the court of heaven makes it so. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. The incredible precision of the court of heaven, the perfections of God, and God providing, in the midst of our imperfections. And there is no other way but His way. This morning we have the uh, unique uh, privilege in God's good providence of partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, Certainly the Gospel presentation in Romans 3 beginning in verse 21 is in its own way uh, a great theological uh, backdrop for the sacrament of the Lord's table by which we come. And every day we know that we're needy, so Christ comes as host of the table to give us bread and drink, to quench our thirst, to satisfy our hunger by the provision of Himself. And that by faith in Him we we apprehend all the benefits of the eternal covenant of redemption, from eternity past. And yet he reminds us in time present that every day we desperately need him. And he comes as host of the table to provide for us uh, food and drink. Uh, Very quickly, um, we do prepare our hearts for such a great provision. Not unlike we prepare ourselves when we go to our grandmother's home for... Christmas dinner. We go on, in some cases, her provisions. Uh, wash your hands, whatever the case might be. In this case, we prepare our hearts, thanking God, eternally grateful for the eternal one-time act of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's all that it took. And yet, everything that it took because He gave His life a ransom that won for the many. A way to prepare our hearts comes from one of the great Reformed confessional statements, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Answer, for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death. And who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more and more holy. That's the attitude by which we should come. Think of it in terms of this way in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're all still sinners. We're going to commit sins in thought, word, and deed sometime this afternoon. Certainly beginning Monday. And yet these are covered too by the passion and death of Jesus Christ, the one for the many. Incredible gift. Of course, there are spiritual warrants. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who receives me shall never thirst. You're not a Christian. Come to Christ. I would remind you that uh, the sacrament of the Lord's table, Grace Bible Church, is open to all who confess faith in Christ and have been baptized. or are not under church discipline and who are not living in some known sin for which they are unrepentant. Uh, if I've just described you, you should simply pass the elements by. No one's going to be watching. We're going to be concerned with rejoicing in God, thanking Him for our forgiveness. But just a reminder it's a warning text, really, that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that do not take of uh, the sacrament in an improper manner. Returning to another Reformed confessional statement. Article 35 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. For the support of the spiritual and heavenly life, which believers have, He has sent them a living bread, which came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of the believers when He is eaten by them that is spiritually appropriated and received by faith. By faith. We receive by faith. Nothing happens in God's economy without faith. And so as we pass the bread, I ask you to hold it Towards time all have received. And then I will give thanks and we will eat together, manifesting uh, our profound love for Christ as a body of believers, but also the unity of the church forged on the cross by the substitutionary of the atonement of the great son of God, the one for the many. Let's prepare our hearts to partake of the bread. Our Lord, we come as sinners, but forgiven because of Christ and His righteousness. And we come thankful. And we come as sons and daughters of the great King. We come with the blessings of eternal life, the treasury of heaven. We come with the great Spirit who guides and leads us in this life to the next. We ask that Thou wouldst bless us as we partake. And as we partake, Lord, strengthen our faith and enhance the wonderment of what it means to be forgiven for all time. In Christ, whose name we pray, Amen. In like manner, the uh, the cup. Um, again, I will pass it. Please uh, hold it to which time all are served and then we will uh, partake together. Uh, I do remind you that in the center of the service there is wine. In the periphery, uh, there is grape juice uh, so that each may partake in uh, their terms of their own uh, tradition and uh, life. Uh, but more importantly, that Christ drank the cup of judgment for us, that we might drink this cup of joy and celebration. And uh, may this frame our preparation to receive from Christ uh, that which quenches our every thirst in terms of eternity. Let's prepare, partake of the cup. Our Father, we thank thee for the gift of grace. We are profoundly grateful that the eternal court of heaven has acquitted us and set us free by Christ. And that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And may the wonderment of all that that means follow us this day and all of the remaining days of our life for the glory of Thy great kingdom that we pray would come from heaven soon. For the glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.